Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis Park and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As we did last year with our year-end segment, we have with us great friend and day one supporter of the show, David Zakoden, along with my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Join in for this 2022 end-of-year segment. David and Steve, I can't believe 12 months have gone on. Uh, it's gone by so quickly. You guys ready to do this? Absolutely. Thanks for yeah. having me on. Yeah, ready to go, David. Looking forward to it. All right, so let's start. I mean, how could you not start with with uh, Novak in Australia? I mean, we started the year, unfortunately, with some chaos, right? We thought he wasn't going to be able to play. Then we thought he could get in and play. Um, ultimately, he was not allowed to play. Thankfully for 2023, looks like he will play, which all tennis fans should want. Um, I, I'll leave it to both of you. You know, obviously, we had the, the storyline of Rafa coming back in the final down two sets of love to Daniil Medvedev, got his 21st slam of the year um, before picking up number 22, Roland Garros. I'll, I'll start with you guys. What were your takeaways from Australia? David, you know, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think it's 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 the first year where we really didn't see the Novak dominance coming in. Obviously, he wasn't at the tournament. And, you know, one thing that that sticks with me from, from Rafa's victory is, is obviously coming back from two sets of love down in, in the final against Medvedev, but um, it was a tough tournament for him. You know, he made easy work of Berrettini in the semis, but if you remember he had a big five-setter um, against Shapovalov in the quarters. He looked a bit tired in that match. I think Uncle Tony said it was a miracle that he was in even in the second week to begin with, but um, ultimately an awesome fortnight in Australia for a guy in Rafa who's had a lot of excruciating losses there, um, finals to Roger, finals to Novak in the past, and for him to finally put the finishing touch on the second uh, sort of career slam was was an awesome accomplishment for him. Only two of his 22 slams have been in Australia. That's 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 something. Steve, uh, what are your thoughts? What were your takeaways from that tournament? Yeah, well, briefly, uh, yeah, I would, that's been the hard luck land for Rafa. You just touched on it, David, by mentioning it's only his second, which sounds ridiculous as to minimize somebody winning a major twice but for him that was a low number because and he'd also had a lot of really heartbreaking losses in the finals of that tournament and uh you know notably the one against Novak in 2012 where Rafa was serving at 4-2 30-15 in the fifth and Novak came back and beat him so he had some bruising final round losses excuse me another against Stan that he had never lost to Stan never lost a set to Stan in 2014 hurt his back and he clearly was hindered, taking nothing away from Stan. So this had been the, the bad luck place. And then suddenly good fortune came his way and he took it. And as David alluded to, that was it, it took something to survive the Shapovalov match because it went five and he was suffering from some form of heat stroke. And he was not in good shape. He was smart enough in the end to just get a lot of balls back and let Dennis self-destruct. And that's basically what happened in the fifth. Rafa played a very smart fifth. But now to Novak because that's what you started with very badly handled situation all around because he was admitted in, he was told that he was in the tournament by tennis Australia. And, and so he had every reason to believe. And I think sports fans and news hounds never really fully understood that part of it, that he'd been given a green light by Craig Tiley and tennis Australia to say, you're in the tournament, you have received an exemption. So when he came over, then of course he was stopped. Uh, you know, the, the, the government stopped him. You know, in other words, there'd been poor communication between the two forms of the government, Thailand, Tennis Australia, and, and the government, the larger government, 
of, of Australia. So it turned into a fiasco. And I do, do believe that, yes, he had to pay the price for not taking the vaccine. He fully understood that. But it never should have come to that. It never should have come to Novak getting on a plane, going over there and being humiliated. And at one point, the judge had actually cleared him to play and he was out practicing. And then the minister of sports stepped in and said, no, no, not so fast. Back in the detention center. It was really unfortunate because I think general sports fans, even general tennis fans, had the wrong impression of Djokovic trying to essentially barge into the country and push his weight around, which was really not what he was doing. So I thought that was a sad way to start the year. The fact that Rafik won it was 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 kind of a was terrific in the sense that it was another all time great, you know, who had had his bad fortune there and and really came through in the clutch despite only playing one tournament the second half of last year. That's what made it so amazing. He came in and played a two fifty and won it in Melbourne, and then wins the Australian Open. Yeah, improbable, astonishing. So there was a happy ending in the end for the Australian Open. Yeah, I know. Well said by both of you. I want to move on to um, some retirements that happened this year. And there were a number of people who retired, but no bigger than the three that we're going to talk about. And of the three people, two of the three, you could kind of maybe predict, right? And that being Serena and Roger. Um, the first, and it was also the first one who said, who announced her retirement that year, was the shocker. And that was Ash Barty. Um Ash, three-time Grand Slam champ, including winning her last Slam title in her hometown in Australia. In what I would say, when I was saying, and when we were watching it, a Steffi Graf-like performance, and she almost was able to match Steffi or even beat her as far as records in over two weeks of a Slam and fewest games lost. She didn't quite get there, but it was a dominating performance. Then, of course, you had Serena. Serena, I mean, there's so much you can say. Twenty-three Slams. Um, it was great to see Serena play inspired ball in New York because she didn't look great in Wimbledon. Um, she didn't look great coming into um, New York. Credit to Renee Stubbs for uh, helping her get ready. I think Renee was a huge help to Serena. And then there was Roger, right? Roger, 20 slams, number one for 310 weeks. There's not enough time on this pod to go through some of the stats. Some of the more amazing ones were, you know, between 2003 and 2009, he makes 21 of 28 major singles finals. 2004 to 2010, he made 23 consecutive semis and majors. He also made 36 consecutive quarters in row and majors. Um, played almost 1,511 matches, never retired. And go on and on uh, about Roger. Let's start with the hometown hero in Australia, Ash Barty. Steve, we'll start with you. Yeah, I was very saddened, as I think most uh longtime tennis observers were because it seemed like she was just taking off. She'd won her third major. She It was very gratifying to her as it was to have won Wimbledon the previous year and her first major back at Roland Garros. And it seemed like, okay, I don't think we, we believed that she was ready to completely dominate women's tennis and start going for a grand slam. But she seemed to have many more majors ahead of her crowd pleaser, one of the most well-rounded, probably the most well-rounded player in women's tennis when she left with her ability to hit the two-hander and the slice back and to come forward to volley well, very good serve, just knew how to attack. I mean, so I I was one of the people that really enjoyed watching her play. So all power to her. She did what she wanted to do. She's got to determine what she wants to do with her life. And obviously she decided she'd had enough. So she leaves with three majors when she might have gone on to win another six or seven, who knows. 
sorry to see it happen. It deprived of deprived us of some what could have been some really memorable finals later in the year had she hung around and not just this past year, but uh, theoretically in the years ahead. But it, it was short, you know, 15 singles titles, 12 doubles titles, three majors in the finals of all the doubles of majors, which was showed you what a, a great doubles player she was and won one. So I, I just was in a nutshell, sorry to see her go somewhat startled by the announcement, but she clearly has no intention of coming back. David, your thoughts on Ash? I think, you know, Steve, Steve hit the nail on the head in terms of her legacy and all the amazing accomplishments that she had. I think one thing to point out is, you know, there have been a couple of players in sort of the post-Serena dominance era that have jumped out and won, call it two, three, four slams, gotten number one in the world. And I think for Ash, one thing that stuck out to me is in that first uh, Grand Slam that she won at Roland Garros, she was playing in the semifinals against uh, Amanda Anisimova, who was playing some very strong tennis. And Ash was up, I think, five love in the first set of that semifinal and ended up losing it 6-7 in the tiebreak. Found a way to come back 6-3, 6-3 in the next two sets. And I just think that was sort of a, a pivotal moment in her career because she was able to, to get through that mentally um, super strong player. And I think, you know, cementing her, her career with, I think being the first Australian woman since 1978 to win the Australian open, just really a situation where it sounds like she had accomplished everything that, that she wanted to, um, with her career. And, you know, it's, it's obviously tough for, for the game of women's tennis, but overall, um, just a fantastic career all around. Yeah. We, I think we're all, uh, selfishly disappointed that she cut her career a little short. We would have loved to have seen some of those battles between her and Ega. And we're going to talk about Ega uh, later on in this segment about a bit. Um, Serena, and I'll start with Steve with, with you on this, because you were there. I mean, the atmosphere in New York when, when she announced, and I know there's some inklings that maybe she's not done, but Tennis Channel just recently aired an episode where they asked both Caroline Wozniacki and Andy Roddick if you think she would, Serena would come back at all in a competitive uh, manner in the professional tour. They both said no. So let's assume um, she said she did the announcement, um, used some some different type of words. But but Steve, again, you were in New York. It was so great to see her play well, one, and that atmosphere must have been unbelievable. It was really from the opening round on to beating Conovate, the number two seed, to finally going out in the third round under the lights. I mean, it ended logically. She was not, I mean, there, there were some people who dreamed she might make this spectacular run, win the tournament. Some people who maybe looked at it sort of along the lines of Pete Sampras not having won a major or any tournament all for two years in 2002 and coming back as the number 17 seed. But he'd been playing continuously and to me, there was no that was a that was not a good analogy. So I think it ended the way it should have. The fans got to see her win a couple of matches, lose a three setter, uh, not play badly in defeat, save a bunch of match points at the end with typically spectacular Serena gutsy winners. So she she went out, I think, on something of a high, considering that she had barely played over the last year since Wimbledon of 2021. You know, it had been a long time and she played a couple of tournaments to get ready, but she was not really adequately prepared. Still, I hope, David, that, you know, Serena will take her 23 majors and her, her prodigious accomplishments, so many of them, and just uh, be content with that. There, it, there are those whispers of a comeback. I don't think the comeback would go well. Uh, I think it's asking too much of herself. 
She's 41 years old now. And this was the right way to go out at the U.S. Open where she won her first major back in 1999, still 17 at the time, surprising everybody by getting on the board before Venus. So I thought it was a fitting farewell. And she went out in style and the crowds were euphorically behind her every time she stepped on the court. David. Yeah. And, you know, I was I was on the neighboring court on Armstrong hearing the roars in that match um, against Tom Leonovich. So, you know, like Steve said, amazing way for Serena to go out. Um, and, and I think she can you know, this is a decision that can be made, um, you know, with a lot of peace and conviction. You know, she obviously was trying for that elusive 24th Grand Slam, losing in finals of Wimbledon, um, the U.S. Open in the last year. So it's not like, you know, um, the, the results weren't there in years past, but I think in terms of maintaining form, you know, above 40 years of age and with how competitive the women's game has gotten over the last few years, um, there's a new crop of, of young talented champions. And I think it would be difficult for her to, to try to get that 24th, but, you know, she's had the, the career of all careers, um, in all, in all of tennis, not just women's tennis and, um, plenty to hang her hat on moving forward. And we'll end with with Roger, and he just could not get that knee back to to being healthy. And and again, I, I will will reiterate Steve's uh, perfect prediction uh, later on with Mister Alcaraz. And and I will state that you know I had I had it on record that as soon as it was announced Rafa was going to join Roger for Labor Cup in February, I just there was something inside me, and and that's why I said it on the pod is that it's going to end in labor cup. Obviously I didn't know, but in fact that it did, um, we'll talk about that moment later, but what a great moment it, it was. What an unbelievable career. I've said some just staggering statistics, um, from Roger, Steve, uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you want to talk about? I mean, just may not go down with the most slams. He's not going to right? He's already third, but on a global scale, you, you could make the argument that he has had the biggest effect in tennis. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't I don't I don't think many would argue that point, David, that that he was uh, the most recognizable tennis player. He was the one most synonymous with the sport, man or woman. He was also immensely popular from his early days, certainly from the time he won his first major at Wimbledon in 03 through the rest of his career. It didn't matter whether he was dominating the game or whether he was struggling to deal with the surging uh, Nadal or Djokovic. He, the fans were with him wholeheartedly wherever he went in the world. So, yeah, I think he was he was a, a tennis player who transcended the sport. It's not a cliche to say that. And I think he was he was very smart too to 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 say goodbye when he did in that setting, knowing that he'd just been too been through too much the last few years with the knee surgeries, all the false starts because if you think about it, David and David, he uh he got, he was at that Wimbledon celebration of champions who came out on the court. It was a really nice celebration. McEnroe was emceeing it. And even then he still had hopes of returning and said so, but he was very smart to realize as the summer went on that it just was not going to work out and that he, he should, he should bid farewell. He seems to have no misgivings whatsoever. So you could argue that he's certainly the most important tennis player of the modern era. And one of the most significant of all time. David, your thoughts. You guys have hit on on all the stats, um, on all the on all the big memories. I mean, transcending the sport, I think in, in some ways is even an understatement. Um, I think as a fan, it was a little bit difficult to see it all actually 
come to an end because you saw him struggling in, you know, early part of 2020, trying to make that comeback on the clay and on the grass in, in 2021. And you could maybe tell from a, from a 30,000 foot level that maybe his movement just wasn't quite where it was um, even from a few years back, let alone the peak of his career. Um, so in some ways, you know, to think that his last official singles match was, was that disappointing loss to her catch at Wimbledon is, is a bit of a, a tough pill to swallow, but in a, in a sort of poetic way, going out and, and doubles at an event that he created or initiated to honor a legend of tennis with his biggest rival, with probably one of his closest um, companions on tour, especially in the latter parts of their career. Um, you know, it's, it's probably as good as it was going to get. And just to see them share the court again, you know, not moving great and all, it was still super special to see, um, in a city in London that meant so much to him throughout his whole career. Thank you. Echo my thoughts, not only my thoughts, but, but a lot of people's thoughts on that. Extremely well said, David, I'm going to stick with you because Steve touched on this in a previous episode a bit. Um, and we'll give Steve an opportunity to to talk about it um, maybe a little bit in more detail again. But you look at three people who arguably had the best year, right? So I'll ask you who had the better year. Was it Rafa, who, again, he won the first two majors of the year. He makes that semis of the third slam. I've said this several times on episodes. I, I just, when you win the first two, you want to have a chance to try to get that third. And then the third, you got one more to go. And Everybody, including him, felt cheated that, again, if he was healthy and could play, there was no guarantee he was going to beat Nick in the semis and then Novak in the final. But you want the chance to try to compete. No one's a better competitor than than him. Um, So you had Rafa had a sensational year. You have Carlos being the youngest year end number one in ATP history. Um, Shout out to Steve from the last year's year end segment who said, I think, Steve, you said top 10 and then like two or three months into the year. You and Renee Stubbs both said you said it first, and then Renee said it. Didn't even know that you said it first. Also, Carlos Gada and the year number one, and then of course you have Novak by and Novak by winning Wimbledon for the seventh time this year. Novak became the first man to ever win two different majors seven or more times each, having won nine Australian Opens. Floor is open for you, Mister Zakodin. I like how you guys uh, referred to this question as sort of the appetizer in the segment that you did um, after the end of the year end finals. And and Steve sort of broke it into three areas, right? It was Novak probably being in a vacuum, the top performing highest level player with some of the tennis that he showed this year. Alcaraz obviously getting number one, checking all the boxes, all the, you know, high prognostications. And then Rafa sort of from, a you know, for measuring things by numbers of slams, he obviously gets the edge in that category. Here's how I look at it. And I think it's a word that we've already used um, earlier in this show, but it's it's about what was improbable, what was maybe least expected. And from my standpoint, if, if you had asked me on January 1st, 2022, what would you have least expected between the three of these things? I go back to seeing what kind of shape Rafa was in, in DC last year, losing to Lloyd Harris in the second round or third round in the city open to think that he would have come with absolutely no match play, winning the Melbourne 250 event, winning the Australian open in the manner that we did, which we touched on and then winning the French with everything we had going on with his foot. um, Not knowing if he was even going to be able to make it through that tournament, the pain that he talked about having in the second round, 
um, I still have to give the edge to Rafa. And in some ways, I think we also forget a little bit about his uh, Wimbledon run because of the disappointment in having to pull out against uh, Kyrgios in the semis. But the resilience that he showed in that quarter against Taylor Fritz, in spite of the injury that he had, you know, just to continue battling. And like you said, David, to, to try to go for that, you know, third uh, consecutive major to start the year, something he's never done before. Because obviously it was the first time that he won the Australian, he lost to uh, the Soderling in the, in the French. Mm-hmm. So um, I give the edge to Rafa, but I really think there's, there's no wrong answer here. I mean, a special treat for all of us to see each of those three guys just have a phenomenal season. And, you know, I think honestly, the hopes are pretty high for, for all three of them going into 2023 as well. And I, I want to add before I pass it on to Steve, I, I didn't say about Carlos. I mean, you got to remember, um, you know, his U.S. Open title, but what he did in Madrid, right? I mean, he beat Rafa and Novak back to back, same clay court event. No one's uh, no one's ever done that. And then he still had a final to play against Sasha Zverev and he absolutely destroyed Sasha. So um, when we look at Carlos again, let's just not focus on the on the slam that he won. He had an amazing year. Steve. Um, you want to maybe uh, enhance any of the thoughts you had in our earlier episode? I, I don't think Carl. I, I think it was crucial that Carlos won the U.S. Open. That's how he really validated what his, his rise to number one. It, it never feels right if you've done it without winning a major and you just pile up titles elsewhere, and it rarely occurs. So I was happy for him that he took advantage of that opportunity and won three five setters uh, along the way before winning that final uh, over Rude in four. It was a remarkable effort, particularly the center match where he was down a break in the fifth and he was down a break in the fifth against Chilich also. He was, he really had a hard road to get there. And I don't think he necessarily played by the way, as well as he had in the period you're referring to back in the spring might've been his best tennis from Miami leading up to the French open. Nonetheless, Mm -hmm. It, he capped it all and sort of proved to himself in the world what he could do and validated that, that status. Now, let's let's be clear. I mean, Rafa was deprived of the chance to really, he didn't really make an all-out bid to be number one. He tried. He could have still done it at the end of the year, but he didn't play well indoors and didn't make the semis of the year end. And Novak played 11 tournaments in the entire year, won five of them, played Labor Cup as well, but won five, got to a couple other finals. And and uh, won a major and then won the year-end championships stylishly by not losing one set against five top 10 players. So uh, I, 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 you can make the case for any of the three about who, who really got the most value out of the year, but I, I, I think they're all pretty content with what they did. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, again, and Novak with the limited tournaments that he was able to play and his accomplishments with what he did is... Uh, Pretty extraordinary. All right, let's try to look forward um, a little bit to 2023. Um, some of the thoughts that we did this a year ago were, were pretty spot on. Some, uh, one of mine was clearly not spot on, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one later. I guess we'll go with some quick hitters here. Um, I'll ask David uh, first. Does Rafa come back strong and win his 15th 1-5 Roland Garros title? I think so. Um, it's not a hot take by any means, given the given the the sample size and the history that we're looking at. But um, if he's healthy, I still think he's the best player on that surface. Novak, obviously, um, always a stern challenge. But uh, I would say yes. I would say Rafa. Yeah, let's assume he's let's assume he's healthy. Yeah. So, Steve, if he yeah. if Rafa's healthy, is he going to win his fifteenth? 
Yes, I, I agree with David on that. It, that that's going to be a big part of the equation. But the reason is there's still so few players that can beat him best of five on clay, even if he's not feeling 100%. And we saw that this year. He, he could not have been feeling great going on the court with injections before every match. And yet he kept an incredibly high standard throughout that fortnight. The, the, the biggest scare was Felix, who took him to five sets, FAA. But I mean, yeah, I... I, I it's ridiculous to be talking about a 15, but I don't, I, I don't see why if he's feeling reasonably good, he won't do it because the gap between Nadal on the clay, I mean, there's, we've never seen anything like this on a surface where somebody has been so far superior to everyone else on, on a particular surface. And David's right. Novak is very underrated on clay, but still he's got to be at his best. We saw the difference, you know, in 2021, played a great match and won one of the great sets they've ever played, the pivotal third set of that of that match that they played at, at Roland Garros 21. But then this year they come back, meet in the quarters, and Novak was a little bit up and down and, and squandered an opportunity to take it to five when he led 5-2 in the fourth and had a couple of set points on his serve at 5-3. Rafa makes you pay for squandering opportunities like that. So I do think because he is, is, is so vastly superior to everyone else on clay, he better be at, at somewhere down in the 50, 60 percent range before we say he's not going to win that tournament. Yeah, and unfortunately, one of the players who I think was making um, some headway against Rafa ha has been injured the last couple of years. And that's Dominic Team, who yeah. is also obviously a very, very good clay court player. And we haven't seen him um, being able to contend for that title um, against Rafa. So hopefully Dominic continues to get healthy. He started playing better at the end of the la uh, this past year so. Um, we'll see. Okay. Same question I asked the end of last year. And when I asked this question, it's not meant to be an insult because <laughs> there's only four majors that go around each year. And I mean, Rafa and Novak, you know, before it was Roger, right. And Rafa and Novak are just eating these things up again, this past year, they've won three of the three of the four. Um, the only others outside of the big three that have really won, and I'm thinking off this off the top of my head. So if I miss one, you guys will, uh, you guys will correct me, but we, we got Medvedev, we got team and we got Carlos. It's not like they're giving these slams out as, as birthday presents to everybody. So um, who wins their first major and will it happen in 2023? Stefano Tsitsivas or Sasha Zverev? Steve, we'll start with you. Again, it gets back to health. Poor Sasha was ruined after that, uh, that agonizing walking off the court. Terrible injury that we all witnessed with, 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 uh, with horror and, and that put him out for the year. And so we don't know it's going to be, it, I certainly don't give him a great chance in Melbourne, but I'm hoping that by the time Roland Garros comes around, the essential Zarev is back. If that's the case, and he's been able to maybe pick up a title or two and get back to the form he showed us, you know, in 2021 and the early stages of this year, I give him slightly better chance than Stefanos. Uh, not that I want to sell Sitsipas short because we've seen him. I mean, it was one set away. He was up two sets to love on Novak in the 2021 Roland Garros final. So he was awfully close. Uh, and we've seen him in the, a bunch of times in the latter stages, the Australian Open. Hasn't yet shown his best at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. But I, so I'd give slight edge to Zarev is, is the short answer. Yeah, and I, and I think David and I have had several conversations about this one. You you start breaking down the slams, and you're like, okay, 
if this guy wins one, which one is it, right? It's not like they have equal amount of chance on all four, which makes it even more difficult when you have Novak and Rafa still in the picture. David, Tsitsipas or Zverev, does one of them get, him done, get it done this year? Um, I'm going to go no. Um, I think there's some names that we haven't talked about, and maybe I don't, don't want to tease the, the rest of the show, but probably will talk about in terms of an FAA, a Medvedev, a Sinner, other names that are, have been breaking out, Casper Ruud. Um, you know, Steve tackled the, the Zverev piece of the equation. I think a lot of that, like, like Steve said, because of the health is such an unknown uh, quantity right now. From, um, from a Tsitsipas standpoint, I think a very odd year in, in many ways. You know, he, there were some moments where he showed that he was playing some top-notch tennis, very competitive, close matches with Novak in Paris. Um, but at the same time, I think mentally he, he may not be necessarily where he needs to be in order to really get over that, that hump. And we've had a lot of conversations uh, about what's the future of his coaching box. What's the relationship between the mom, the dad. And I really think he's going to have to tackle a lot of those demons before he ends up in the winner's circle. Having said that he was very close in, in, uh, in that French open against Novak. So some of it's luck, some of it is circumstantial, but I think with those two, um, it's going to be tough for, for either one of them to, to get a first slam in, uh, in 2023. Just on okay, the positive side, David, just a quick comment on the positive side, and I, I agree with everything David just said, but Mark Filipousis has played a, a pretty important role with Sitsipas this past year, and I like what I've seen, what he's tried to do with him, and I'm hoping that Mark will become a greater and greater influence and, and that his dad will become a father, more of a father than a coach. His role will be reduced and that he'll accept that. If that's the case, uh, I think that's all in Stefanos' favor. All right, the next one we're going to throw out, we're going to try to predict something on the most unpredictable person out there. So good luck with that. But um, Nick Kyrgios, everyone knows how strong a year he had in 2022 and everyone knows the summer he had, right? Which culminated in, in playing a, a very good final against Novak coming up a little bit short, but remember it just wasn't in that summer. He won the doubles in Australia at the beginning of the year. So he had a good year. And from what he's been saying, he is hungry to do this again in 2023. Let's assume he's healthy, right? As we do with all these predictions, because if you're not healthy, just sports too hard to really um, do anything miraculous. Assume he's healthy. Are you looking for him to maybe equal his year uh, in 2022 and possibly for Nick to win a slam. Steve, I'll start with you. Well, I, I, I think Nick, uh, my guess is he falls narrowly short again, that he may make another great Wimbledon. You would think would be his best chance with that serve on the grass as he, as he, as was demonstrable this past year. Uh, I, so I, I, my, I, I think it would be nice to see him finally pull one off given that he's made the full commitment. I, May, I don't quite see it with the talent at the top that he's going to have to topple to pull off one of these. But I think he'll, 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 he'll definitely threaten at Wimbledon and perhaps perhaps at, at the Australian and U.S. Opens as well. Roland Garros, I don't see it. I was going to say Australia because he plays some inspired ball in Australia on the singles court. He's had some good results. He's just had to play some top seeds pretty early in that draw, which makes it difficult. But now that his ranking is getting a little bit higher, um, we'll see. David, what about Nick? I think to Steve's point, he he may need some breaks to go his way, you know, sort of in the way in the U.S. Open where 
couple of the top contenders, Rafa went out and and he was sort of, I think he became the the betting favorite at some point before that match against Kachinov. And so it's it's one of those situations where if a couple breaks go his way and he's, you know, has the mental fortitude to be deep into the second week, then he can really make some some damage. And and David, to your point, it was it was a bit shocking to me sort of which way he went mentally after Wimbledon, right? He had sort of that strange mercurial uh, post-match uh, interview where he said he was super tired and wasn't sure he wanted to go through that experience of losing Novak again. And then he gets to the summer hard courts and he's telling everyone that he's hungry for more, that getting close at Wimbledon has motivated. And then to a point where after he lost at the U.S. Open, he says, the slams are all that matter. This is what you have to peak for. This is where you're going to be remembered for. And so I think there's a lot of fire in his belly to really – um, peak at the right times, whereas in other parts, in previous parts of his career, we weren't really sure when or why he was peaking. Um, so with that renewed focus, I think he's going to put a lot of energy into Australia. And in a similar way in which the doubles win last year, I think set the tone for some of his habits and you know newer discipline for the rest of the season. I think how he does in singles in Australia, whether it's um, a good result that ultimately falls short or you know, hopefully not a disappointing loss. I think that'll set the tone for where he ends up going in 2023. We shall see again, most unpredictable player on tour. So it'd be interesting to see uh, his journey in 2023. Iga Sviatek wins two slams, French Open and US Open, had 37 match winning streak, uh, four WTA 1000, she wins, two WTA 500, she wins, Gosh, I wish Ash would have been around to see those two in some late, late stages of those biggest tournaments of the year. Um, David, Iga, is she going to continue her uh, domination in 2023? I think it's going to be very tough. Um, and that's, again, it's, well, she was on on massive winning streaks of 20-plus matches last year. I think it is 37 clear, in a row. Yeah, 30, 37 in a row. There you go. So she she definitely showed that she was at a level above anyone else in the WTA top 10. But I think having said that just from a mental drain standpoint, I think this is something that she talked very publicly about toward the end of last season where the, the physical and, and mental drain from that type of run playing that many matches on, on different surfaces, it's just tough to replicate that. Um, but I think from a level standpoint, she showed that when she's playing her best, she's probably a step above whoever's next in the, you know, sort of in the pipeline, whether that's an Ons Jabor, um, a Caroline Garcia, she really showed at the U S open in that final against Hans that when she was playing her best, it was going to be very difficult to beat her. Um, but is she going to be at that level? I'm not sure. Um, maybe I'll defer to, to Steve on that. You know, what do you think about uh, Egan in 23? Yeah, I look at it essentially the way you do, David. I I, I believe, though, that we, we saw her. It was a that was an important win in New York at the U.S. Open. She'd already won her second French Open early in the year. So now she does it on the hard courts, which I think meant a lot to her. And until now, I think she'd been slightly better on the clay, although she won a lot of important hard court titles this season. I see her winning at least at least one major next year. And, and she might pull off two again. But I where I agree with you is it's. It's hard work, and I believe the line between her and the other top players that you mentioned is relatively thin. She still has to she, – she's not going to beat them. She's very enterprising and industrious, but she's not going to beat them easily. 
And she, she does mentally, there's a lot of wear and tear. So I worry sometimes about how well she handles the pressure. Having said that, she looked pretty comfortable at the top by the end of the year. And, and I'm looking for a pretty good follow-up in, in 23. As I say, it's, it's certainly one major along the way and possibly two. Person that uh, I was very surprised with, and I think a lot of tennis fans were very surprised with how well he played this year was Casper Ruud. Uh, I would have never guessed he would make two finals slams this year, which he did at the French and the U.S. Open. He also reached the finals of Masters 1000 event in Miami, losing to Carlos. Also reached the finals of the, the year-end finals, losing to Novak. Um, I don't think he comes close to those accomplishments next year. That said, I also think he can still have a very good year next year. I just think the results that he had this year were sensational, and I would be very surprised if he matched those results again. But yet again, I emphasize, I still think he can have a very good year in 2023. Steve, your thoughts on Casper? David, that's a very frank assessment. <laughs> I, no, I, I essentially agree with you on that. I, I mean, he, he gets to the final, not a shocker that he got to the final of the French. It's his best surface. Very surprising that it happened at the U.S. Open. So two major finals, not to mention, he gets to the final of the year-end championships indoors on hard. Nobody saw that coming, including him. So, yeah, that's very hard to replicate in 23. Uh, having said that, I expect him to sort of solidify his, his place as a top five player and win some tournaments and go deep into some of these majors again. I don't expect him to have to be losing early at the majors, uh, and but maybe he's maybe he loses in this quarters or semis of a couple of those majors rather than getting to the finals. I hope he, I hope he proves me wrong. I think he's a really earnest craftsman and well-liked by the other players and just a straight shooter. And he improved his back end a lot over the course of the year, which impressed me. So I still, I, I still see him. I don't, I don't know about three in the world, but I could see him staying in the top five. And that's, you know, you basically said what, what I was trying to describe is he can make quarters, semis of all the slams and have a fantastic year still may not be able to match the results of 2022. David, your thoughts on Casper? There's probably two sides to this coin. One side is you can easily say that this was an overachieving year, right? I think he was at eight in the world to start the year. Certainly would not have expected the results that, that we saw from Casper, um, especially on hard courts, indoor hard court. Um, but Steve mentioned it. It's the improvement of the backhand. I think it was even something that uh, Tony Nadal mentioned in a comment where he was saying that, you know, surprised that this guy that came through our academy is now, you know, fighting for number one in the world. And one thing that stood out to me when I when I watched Casper play in, in person at the U.S. Open is I think from a from a mental standpoint, his level of focus and some of the resilience that he shows in tough moments, whether it's against players that are ranked lower or even in a match like the World Tour Finals against Novak, his, his focus and his ability to stay calm throughout a match is extremely impressive. And I think it's something that sets him apart from a lot of those guys in that early to mid-20s age range that we've talked about breaking through. So that's why I think that ultimately, even if he doesn't reach two slam finals next year, there is still a ceiling for him to, to reach and, and more potential to untap that he may not have gotten this year. So I, I certainly would not say that um, this is a, a one and done type of year. And, and Steve had, you know, Steve talked about solidifying this reputation and this status. I think he's firmly belongs in the top five. 
No, that's great. Well, eager to see Casper in 2023. Um, I'll throw one more in there. Steve already talked about this, so I'll answer it for Steve, and he will correct me where I go wrong. Coco Goff, right? She had a wonderful year um, making the finals of Roland Garros, just to name probably the biggest accomplishment. She will not be winning a slam in 2023, but in 2024 and and, and definitely by 2025, she will have at least one slam in her pocket. Right, Mr. Flink? I, I go along with that. I do. I mean, I'm not going to rule it out for the coming year either, although it's high. It's I would say highly unlikely. It wouldn't shock me if we, we saw her back in another final somewhere. Uh, but yes, by 24, 25, that she's really going to be starting to be closing in on her peak. And I'm hoping by then the forehand is more under control. And she's got more confidence in her second serve. The, the, you know, the key areas where she needs to make strides, I think by then she will have done it. And uh, but I, I do expect a, a more a greater consistency in 2023, David. Yes, I agree. No, no major. I don't see a major, but I see I want to see, you know, some her taking a few titles and sort of paving the way for what she would do in the, the years uh, that follow. And for the listeners, uh, Steve and I talk a lot, but I'm not at the level where I'm reading his brilliant mind. I echoed those thoughts because Steve had previously said that in an episode. So uh, I was just repeating what, what, what Steve had talked about Coco, but yeah, um, totally. I mean, just keep getting better, right, Steve, keep getting consistency, especially with that serve and the forehand. And and we already know about her athletic ability. So eager to see her. Okay. Let's go favorite moments of the year. Mine. uh, I've spoken on about this in, in several pods and it was, it was Roger and Rafa at Labor Cup. It, I know it's not what many people would consider a, a normal tournament, but I mean, how could you not uh, have that at anyone's top of the, their list, not just as a tennis fan, but a sports fan in general? And, I, and again, I think that moment goes up against any big time sports moment when someone uh, is leaving their respective sport. It was that that Friday night was was awesome. David, uh, what was your favorite moment of the year? has to be the uh, the U.S. Open match between Sinner and Alcaraz. Um, I think that was a match that really solidified sort of this, you know, new next-gen era of, of men's tennis. It was a match that had, you know, folks that are either diehard fans, casual fans of the sport, maybe just fans that are tuning in for the Grand Slams. They were talking about it. The The level of tennis there was was so elite that, you know, it's it's really the type of level that we had seen in big three, big four matches in the past. And to see those guys, you know, really go head to head, especially in, a, in an early stage of the rivalry where I think Sinner really had um, Carlos's number in their past few meetings. And, you know, for it to go five sets in the way it did. And, you know, I think there's a good argument to be made that whoever wins that match, even if Sinner had won it, would have won the U.S. Open. So um, a terrific moment for the sport and look forward to, um, a lot more matches between the two of those on on all surfaces. Yeah, those two guys are going to be playing a lot in the future. It's going to be some serious battles there. Steve, uh, what was your favorite moment of the year? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm really gonna hedge a bit. I'm because I'm going to give you three instead. Rafa's okay. come, Rafa's comeback against Medvedev, which was so improbable from two sets of love down, two three love forty in the third, astonishing. Uh, then Novak's Wimbledon win over Kyrgios. I just enjoyed the match immensely and, and enjoyed watching him rise to the occasion again and win the title for the seventh time. And finally, not so much Carlos. I agree with David about the, 
the match with Sinner was was a glimpse into the future, and it was the, the level was it was a soaring. So they they both were soaring at times and pushing each other to help. Uh, but but I just I, I even enjoyed more the final in some respects. It wasn't nearly as good a match, but to see if Carlos could handle the pressure, everybody thought he, this is surely his match. He he was the heavy favorite in in many ways at that stage, and you could feel it at times. You know, you you just wondered would he handle the the pressure of a final his his first major final, and he came through with flying colors in the end. So I, I have to go with with all three. And Steve, I'm remembering that match now. I mean, everyone knows about his ground game and how fast he is. Carlos, his serve in that match, match specifically got him out of a lot of tight moments in that match. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, particularly in the fourth when he was nervous, particularly when he was serving for the match, David, and he missed an easy overhead. And you could see he was tight. But then he'd come back with a and brilliantly placed first serve into the corner at 128. And yeah, I, I hope that Carlos is going to put more emphasis on that first serve and that he and Ferrero will, will kind of zero in on that aspect of his game next year. I think it could make a big difference because there were times in some of these matches where I thought he got broken more than he should. And he and, and he doesn't want to have to put the premium so much always on his speed or or hitting blazing winners off the forehand. Get some free points off that serve, which he did that day to an astonishing degree. Yes, he did. Okay, a few closing thoughts. Um, I will ask you both for a mulligan because I predicted Maria Sakari will win a major this year. That clearly did not happen. She played very poorly um, in the majors, and, and she will she would agree with that statement. I think she felt the pressure of how well she did in 2021 and play up to her ranking. That said, I love the way how she finished the end of the year getting through some clutch, clutch matches, especially in Guadalajara to qualify for the WTA finals. That match was basically a winner take all. If you lose, you don't qualify. If you win, you do get in. And then she rock and rolled until the semis of the WTA finals. I don't think she lost a set. She bought, she beat three really good players. So I'm hoping um, the way she finished the end of 2022 can parlay into 2023 and she can play a little bit more freer. I felt that's what she did once she qualified uh, and she started to play in the WTA finals. Steve, great call on Carlos. Uh, you're, you're not a hall of famer for nothing, sir. I mean, you called it last year. Um, the pressure's on for this year. I don't know how you're going to match that. Steve, you got a, uh, you got some predictions for 2023. Well, I think I, I'm going to predict that, that, that I, I'm not giving Sinner a major, but I'm giving Sinner his first major final and maybe a semifinal to boot and some, some uh, significant progress for him following up on a really good year this year. And, Although this isn't a daring prediction, I'm, I'm predict I'm saying Djokovic finishes next year back at number one in the world, winning two majors. Okay, okay. Again, you're just not you're not giving these majors to many other people when you got you know Novak and Rafa still around. That's what makes it so difficult for these other players to 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 start winning these. Uh, David, you got any got any predictions you'd like to make? I got one. Um, and it's, it's a name that I don't think we've spent much time talking about, at least in today's show. Um, it's Holger Runa. Oh. And the reason I go there is if, if, if you'd ask me who has the best chance to potentially do next year what Casper Ruud did this year, coming from sort of a high single digits, low double digits in the case of Rune, um, ATP ranking right now, 
I would point to him. And obviously there's some recency bias to it with him having won Paris in quite remarkable fashion, playing at an astounding level, nearly went out to Stan Wawrinka, had a confrontation with him at the net in the early stages of that tournament, ending up, you know, lying on his back, beating Novak in the final. Um, you know, definitely a, a polarizing figure from what it seems in the locker room based on some of the reporting um, on, you know, social media and otherwise that we've heard. But this is a player that I think is really coming into his own in terms of his movement on the court, his aggression from the forehand. You know, in some ways, it reminds me of a bit of a smaller but um, equally powerful uh, Tomas Burdich in some of the ways that he hits the ball, especially the early take back on the forehand. Um, I think he's got a lot of potential. You could say that maybe he still needs to take some of his medicine as a young player, um, really have those deep five-set match experiences and slams. Um, I think he got to the the quarters of the French, I want to say, beating Tsitsipas before he lost to Rude. Um, but that's a name that I would look out for to make a big jump. It's it's maybe not as uh, as mainstream as an FAA uh, potentially, or even a center for a breakthrough, but Holger Runa is, is who I'll be watching in, in 2023. You, you said FAA and the, and the, uh, the audio listeners would not, didn't see what, what occurred earlier, but I thought David for sure was going to say Felix. I mouthed those words. Um, and I was, I was surprised he didn't say it. We have not talked about FAA and I know it didn't really happen at the U S open. He had a tough loss there, but if you look at Felix in some recent slams, who he's lost to and the, the closeness of those matches, He's lost some unbelievably close matches to the best of the best. Um, I think when you look at an overall body of work, I would not be surprised. Again, there's so few of these slams that are out there, especially when you have Novak and Rafa, but he's going to win one. He is definitely going to win one. It's just a matter of time. He finally got his, you know, the, 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 what the consecutive finals losing streak out of the way this year in a big way, he's going to win one. And, and, I would not be shocked if, if it's 2023, if, if something happens with Rafa and Novak, he's going to be right there. You guys agree, Steve? Yeah, I do. I do. I think he's got a, a legitimate shot. And I think that to win three straight titles in the fall, it meant a lot to him. And yet Holger Runa cooled him off and then he didn't do quite as well as he would have liked in the year end championships. But then he bounces back after playing all that tennis and leads Canada to the Davis Cup and played brilliantly there, which I think gives him quite a lift going into 2023. So, yeah, I'm expecting a lot from him. He has to navigate those early rounds sometimes a bit better than he has, David, at the majors. But once he's sunk his teeth into one of those majors, yeah, the time will come. And it's possible that it will be this coming year. I, I, have, I hold him in very high regard, and I think he's a very complete player. Now, uh, Uncle Tony wants that back end to get a little better. And I think it will. I definitely think it will. And uh, with, but I, I, I feel like he's going to have a, a, an exceptional year. David, anything to add on FAA? I think it's, it's about the confidence for him. And one thing that he was lacking, you know, he had the match play, but he wasn't, he didn't have the titles. I think he won his first ever title last year in, uh, in Rotterdam. And, and to really get that win streak that he had in the fall, you know, we've seen some players where those sort of, you know, fall indoor results haven't translated into the, the following season. But I think he's a guy that's got a great attitude. He's got the right people around him. I think it's indisputable that uh, Tony Nadal has had a very positive impact on the trajectory of his career, um, especially when you look at what I think he reached his first 
um, Masters 1000 semi in, in Miami in, in 2019 and then didn't have another one until this past year. So I think he's locked and loaded. He's ready to go. It's just about, you know, can he can he show up in the fifth set against a player that's ranked higher than him and, and get the job done? That's really the only question that's left. Yeah. No, I'd agree. Um, okay, but we've been going around 50, 55 minutes now. Uh, before we end, uh, I do want to mention the, the passing of a uh, true pioneer, a legend. Uh, it's Mr. Nick Balateri. You know, everyone knows him of uh, the Andres and Jim Courier, and he coached Anna Kornikova and Maria Sharapova. I mean, a million. He, at one point, he coached, what, 10 players who were number one in the world. Even before Andre and Jim, he had Jimmy Arias and Aaron Krikstein. I even think Carlene Bassett-Saguso was there. The 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 names the, it's like a a laundry list of on so many players that that he helped um, attain so many goals, truly a legend. I, I want to uh, end with Steve giving his thoughts on uh, you know the the ninety one year old Nick Balateri. Well, David, you name most of most of the players. He he actually started with Brian Gottfried before Nick was really even well, that well known in the tennis community. And Brian Gottfried, of course, is one of the leading Americans there in the seventies and top five in the world. Brian was a great player. I, I got to know Nick in 1980. I, I started working with him on instructional material for world tennis magazine. And then I would, I saw him frequently through the years and I always admired, you know, his zest and his vitality and, and, and he didn't really bluff. He, he knew what his strengths were. He didn't claim he was the greatest technical expert on the game. You know, he had a staff of people to take care of that for him. But he was a masterful motivator. And he did learn a, a lot over the years. Uh, I would say that period between, say, the early 80s and early 90s, his, his depth of knowledge increased exponentially. But the main thing about Nick was he was a unique figure. And he was... He could be a tyrant and, you know, he had his explosive relationships, relationships, including the one with Andre Agassi, some with Jim Courier. But the, in the end, they all admired him immensely because they knew there was no one quite like him. And I think Nick rightfully took his place in the Hall of Fame back in 2014. I was glad to be there, not far, sitting not far away from him because I was speaking that year for John Barrett, a, a great BBC commentator who went in the same year. And, and I thought, David, that Nick would live to 120 minimum uh, because he just every you know, up at 5 a.m. every day. It just followed his routines, always had something on his mind, always had a new goal. So it was sad in the end that he got this illness that really, really restricted him over the last year. And he was barely seen in public. And and uh, I, I think the game will, will miss him immensely. I urge the listeners to go on to social media and, and um, look at some of the recent tweets or Instagram messages that the players that he touched um, put out there. It was, uh, he was a special, special man and helped a lot, a lot of people. Um, he's up there smiling, right? No shirt on with the Oakleys on Steve, <laughs> right? For sure. <laughs> Getting his tan. Everybody always remembered him kind of wandering around the U S open with Agassi or whomever and, and never went, Never did he wear a shirt, but he always, he always wore that smile. Yeah, he did. And we'll, we'll, we'll miss him terribly. The sport of tennis will miss him terribly. Um, we'll, we'll end there, David and Steve. I can't believe it's 12 months. We did this 12 months ago. Um, thanks for spending your time with me. This was a, a, a fun, very interesting year. 
a um, little chaotic, especially at the beginning. Hopefully 2023 will be a lot smoother and we can just kind of focus on the tennis. I wish both of you guys a very happy holiday season, a happy new year. And if you both aren't uh, sick of me by then, we'll, we'll do this again at the end of 2023. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much, David. David, I assure you, we will both be back. I appreciate it. Happy holidays, everyone.